Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. Joined as always by the Igor to my Dr. Frankenstein, <laughs> Brandon. All right, bringing out some Mel Brooks. I can do this. Yeah, baby. Do that. <laughs> yeah, baby. That's great. In, in my top five all-time favorite movies. You know what? I, Young I, Frankenstein. I can get with that. I'd put that maybe my top 15, but uh, Mel Brooks is just good all around. I mean, genius. Put that with like Blazing Saddles. How do you how do you compare those? You know? Oh my gosh! I mean, those. He's just genius. <laughs> I I was obsessed with him when I was a kid, and he's 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 got a new movie coming out too. By the way, weirdly enough, soon enough, the the History of Man Part Two. Oh really? Yeah. Oh after my 40 gosh! Years. <laughs> I watched that first one so many times. It looks pretty good. Oh, good. I'll look forward to that. Well, how you doing, buddy? The do- these these are the doldrums of winter. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to complain about these doldrums when they're near 40 degrees. This is it's not True. bad. I'm doing great. How about yourself? How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I like you. I'm I'm uh, I'm happy that the sun is out and the snow is melting. Yeah, I mean, you walking know? the dog in the morning ain't so fun when it freezes back over. But other I than know that, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been walking the dog in the afternoon for that very reason because it's just like an ice rink getting yeah. down my driveway in the morning with the refreeze but uh you know by two three in the afternoon it's been real nice so yeah, yeah been getting out and you know it's that it's that time of year for those of us who are obsessed with hunting where there's just not a lot going on i mean you can't it's really nothing to hunt and so you kind of like clean your gear do your other projects and look forward to turkey season. And when does turkey season start? Uh, about mid April. Oof. Yeah. That's a little ways away. <laughs> it's a bit away. So yeah. I uh I got an invitation to speak at a Lutheran church cool. out by Painesville, Minnesota, um, in mid April, along with some turkey hunting opportunities. So not bad, not too far from where I grew up. So. Yeah, right. That's your old neck of the woods. Good so old West Central Minnesota. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that and uh got a couple other trips planned to kill time before the the spring season comes and it's time to open up the cabin and get the water running and stuff like that. And one of the things uh that you and I'll both be a part of this week is Pheasant Fest. And so um on let's see, Wednesday night I'm going to the BHA Public Lands Pint Night at unmapped brewing Thursday night. I'm going to the, um, the film festival, the pheasants forever film festival. And then when, when do you do live podcasts? We're Which actually, nights? we're doing a live podcast for the flush on Friday night at 6 PM at the local in downtown Minneapolis. Mm, so that's a, a great bar. Oh, it's yeah. It's, it's a cool Irish pub. We've got this really cool room area reserved for it. So it should be a lot of fun. I'm going to try to get to that, Brandon, but man, and because then that Onyx party is after that too, yes, right? On Friday night. Yeah, it's going to be a late Friday night for people. And then because I'm doing the Wednesday night and the Thursday night, and then on Saturday, I'm going to uh, Pheasant Fest. And then on Saturday night, I'm going to the banquet, the national banquet. I've never been to the banquet before, but I was asked this year to give the invocation prayer for the dinner for 1500 people 
Wow, that's really cool and a lot of pressure. <laughs> so, <laughs> that'll be nice. Yeah, I I don't know. They said several people had nominated me for it. I'm guessing that uh, the guys on the flush are among the the people who mentioned my name. Uh, so yeah, that'll. I just don't know if I can do four nights out in a row. I'm I'm kind of an old man. I that's might have to take Friday night off. <laughs> I, I wouldn't blame you if you took Friday night <laughs> off. That's that's a lot of nights in downtown Minneapolis. But I was listening to the Flush podcast, um, the most recent one that was a. It's about Pheasant Fest, and and it's like they're giving away twenty five thousand dollars worth of gear at the Onyx party, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's that might be worth a drive downtown. I know. As as far as I can remember, like when I had friends going to Pheasant Fest growing up, the the raffles and the prizes and all the free stuff was one of the main reasons for going. Oh yeah, it's a huge <laughs> draw. I mean, I hunt with guys who shoot shotguns that they've won at pf banquets um so let's i'll i'll check in with you (laughs) next time we record and see if i actually won anything i don't know if i'm disqualified from winning at the national banquet because i'm the prayer i doubt it i don't (laughs) i don't think you can rig the contest with prayer so i think you'll be fine yeah and they told me i could bring a plus one and i knew courtney wouldn't want to go so i'm bringing uh mark norquist the modern carnivore he's 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 my plus one at the banquet so yeah we'll check in on that but uh, if anybody's listening to this podcast the week it comes out, you should uh, make plans to get to Pheasant Fest or, or at least one of those ancillary events. But if you're at Pheasant Fest on Saturday afternoon, I'll be there. And a lot of, you know, Mark Norquist, he's going to have a booth there. Another uh, friend of the podcast, Ken Yang, is speaking on a stage about getting into bird hunting. Another friend of the podcast, Travis Frank, is speaking about raising kids in the outdoors. So a lot of uh, former Reverend Hunter guests, Lan Tawney, he's, he was a, one of our, I think he was our very first guest. He will be there. He's the CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So a lot of Reverend Hunter connections. Uh, and yeah, if you're there, um, you know, look, look for me on Saturday afternoon. That's that's really cool. And is, are you bringing the dog with at all? Is no, 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 not bringing the dog. I'm not in the dog parade on Friday. I know Travis is. Yeah, he's leading um, that parade. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, when you're a TV star for the biggest uh, upland hunting TV show, I you know they're going to rope you into a lot of that stuff. That's so, um, I should mention that um, I was on the Flush podcast a couple episodes back. And so people can look that up, but, but Scott Franzen and I did a breakdown of our harrowing trip to South Dakota in late January, pounding through, uh, as, as Travis said, nipple deep snow, (laughs) uh, through the, yeah, cattails. And it was, it was tough hunt. And it was on that hunt that I, recorded this interview with one of my dearest friends in the world and a man who's taught me a ton about hunting and that's Jorge Vicuña. Jorge lives in Huron, South Dakota. He took me in 10 years ago when I did my very first hunting and preaching gig for his church, uh, Grace Episcopal Church in Huron and for his priest. Uh, And Jorge and I have hunted together dozens of times in those 10 years uh, he's come to my house. I've stayed in his house. Uh, we've become dear friends. And I hope you pick up on that. I know the audio is a little wonky because, you know, we're 
sitting in a lodge of uh, there's dogs and people walking in and out and we're just using a little remote setup. So it won't sound, I, I hope I, I don't, I want all my listeners to know, Brandon, that's not your fault. That's my fault. Cause you weren't there engineering. Well, I appreciate that either way. They will get, <laughs> they will be able to hear the conversation and that's the most important. That's thing. important. That's important. So yeah, I, I've, uh, I, I'm, I've been wanting to bring Jorge on the podcast for a long, long time. I did not want to do it remotely. I wanted to do the conversation in person, and so we did it. I really, really am just so blessed to have him as a friend, and I'm thankful to him for coming on the podcast. And uh, uh, I hope you glean a little bit about him and his his passion for hunting as you listen to our conversation. So thanks. Thanks for listening. Hey, I noticed on um, Apple podcast, there's, there've been a couple new reviews recently, which has been very nice. Thank you. If you're out there and listening, I would love it. If you would pop a review on there on any, whatever service you use to listen to podcast, uh, give it a five-star rating and uh, share it with your friends too. Uh, I, and Look for me at Pheasant Fest and uh, keep on listening. Thanks for your support. And here is my conversation with my dear, dear friend from Huron, South Dakota, my one of my great hunting mentors, Jorge Vicuña. Good morning. Buenos dias. I better not put this on the ground. Do you want to um, ex- describe where we are to begin? Where are we sitting with? Here we with are your in, dog. In, in, in the northwest corner of uh, Nance Township in Beetle County, South Dakota. I thought we were in a different county now. We're still in Beetle? Yes, we're still in Beetle County at the, at the very north border of okay. Beetle County. Okay. Uh, across the road, the gravel road north of here, we would enter into Spink County. Okay. And uh, what is uh, three miles west of here, we would go into Hunt County. And this is an old old farm that uh you might need to hold that a little close there yeah that j mac company which was a son of haskell tompkins haskell company uh that goes well back to the 30s i believe uh that was assigned to mr haskell albert m haskell jr uh he uh, managed this property and uh, would rent it out. And it is a particular piece of ground because the Turtle Creek meanders through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, has always been a, how do you call it, a wildlife, how do you call it, corner of really beautiful. Uh, so that's where we are. Yeah, and we're in this lodge. You're here. You, our listeners can hear a bunch of noise in the background because we've got Aaron cleaning up breakfast. We got Scott uh, feeding his dog, maybe, and John is over there. We're in a lodge, beautiful lodge that will be. Uh, if you'll be, able, if you can see it on the TV show, the flush through the smoke. Uh, of the interior footage we have, you'll see it's a beautiful wood wooden lodge out here on the prairie called Prairie Bridge Lodge, owned by Scott and Paula Hamilton. Yes. And Scott and Paula bought it off from the Petersons that held it for a short period of time. 
after Mr. Antai, Gerald Antai, built it and, and developed it for many years and enjoyed it. <clears throat> but then uh, he sold it and uh, Peterson's bought it and then uh, Peterson's did not have use for it any further and uh, Scott and Paula bought it and they already owned some of the land that they had bought when Mr. Antai sold part of the farm. Mm -hmm. And then we end up uh, being the fifth wheel because another acquaintance bought part of that old uh, J. Mac company yeah. farm that belonged to Albert M. Haskell. And uh, we come here hunting. Now you and I, you and I met, we, this is our 10th year of hunting together. Can you believe that? No, really. <laughs> it's a makeup story. <laughs> it's been a while, yes. And I think I've come out between two and six times per year for those 10 years. So I've, we've probably hunted together 35 to 40 times. Think about that. And, and I was, it, so 10 years ago, uh, I was a little down on my luck. And I put a post on my blog asking for, uh, I said I would preach anywhere in exchange for hunting. And I heard from the Episcopal priest in Huron, Mother Jean, who's still there. And uh, out I came, and she introduced me to you. And we had our first hunt. The first time, it was just the two of us. Yeah. And, uh, you need to hold that even a little. Yeah, and, and it's been a fruitful hunt because we have kind of matching styles. We, we don't like big crowds. We just hunt by ourselves with our dogs. And we've been fortunate enough to find the slippery quarry. <laughs> They are tough to hunt. They're they're almost smarter than humans. They pretty soon into the season they know how to get away from you quite readily. Yeah, this hunt is uh, been challenging. Oh, th this last one has been brutal. <laughs> Not just challenging. <laughs> There's just uh, a lot of drift, snow. Even the cattails are smothered almost to the top, so you're trudging in places in five feet of snow that is not well compound. So you break through and. Then you're buried in the snow and you gotta get out. And, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, but then it's, it's part of the game. So when you, and again, I'm gonna, they're perfect. When you, um, when you moved out here, you probably had not, I mean, you're from Chile. You met your wife, Connie, in Chile, when she was working for the Peace Corps. Yes. The two of you moved to Minnesota. And then a few years after that, you moved to South Dakota when she got a job out here. Yes. She was, uh, uh, I, I guess, I, I don't remember exactly, uh, but I think an opening happened in, uh, in the uh, uh, state of South Dakota for a biologist at the NRCS, which she was working for in Minnesota. But it was a good promotion for her, and we had made an agreement that whoever got a promotion, the other one would follow. Mm. And since she got the promotion, we came, take a look, and we found out that the land here was only a fourth of the price that was in Minnesota. So that became attractive to me. 
and we came here. And, uh, kind of a geographical misinformation, because I, in my books and in my education, all of the Midwest was similar climate, oh. but there was no, how do you call, notations to the fact that as you move west, it quits raining. Yeah, and the wind picks up. <laughs> and the wind picks up, so the, the uh, agronomics became quite adverse, essentially for the lack of moisture, because the, the wind also creates more sun uh, daylight, uh, yeah. you know what you call sunlight days. So we have more growing degree days than Minnesota, but not enough moisture to accomplish the potential productivity. In your line of work, you had a background in ag, and you then went into land management here once, once Connie yeah, took I, that job. I, I am a, a practical agricultural engineer with a specialty in fruit crops, but I had a, a very strong interest in animal husbandry and some interest in, in uh, what we call phytotechnia, which is the grow, uh, growing of grains. So I was fortunate enough to run into a gentleman by the name of Albert Haskell Jr., which uh, took a liking to me, and uh, I began working for him. Uh, and uh, over time, I bought the business from him, which was land management. And we completed the purchase, I think, in 1987. And I've been a broker in charge, an owner of the Haskell Agency, which had his name. And I've been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. When did, did you start hunting pheasants just when you moved here? Or did it take a while? Like, you're a very passionate pheasant hunter. And I'm wondering, you obviously didn't grow up hunting pheasants in Chile. No, did there, you do any upland bird there hunting? was there was no pheasants in Chile, but there was lots of quail, and then there's a uh, perdiz, which is not a procta perdicaria, which is a very peculiar bird uh, because when he uh, uh, takes off, it, it tweets really loud and very I call it aggressively or aggressively, and people have been known to drop the shotgun, you know. <laughs> On the surprise, because it takes off practically off of your feet. And it's like a, a rough grouse has that explosion that yes. can really yes. surprise and, and, you. And yeah. not only has that explosion, but she flies up and in, in 20 yards or 15 yards, she dives down. Oh. And, and then uh, almost like a war pilot flies right tied to the cover. So if you don't get your shot out quickly, you don't have a chance. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Chile, uh, because of political history, I suppose, is a very gun-restrictive country. So it's very difficult to have shotguns and difficult to buy shells. And, and there is a cultural kind of reticence to the weapons. Yeah. So uh, it was a passion that I obviously had all along, but could not exercise it well in Chile. Mm -hmm. even though we had access to the land and great hunting, but no guns. Yeah. So when I emigrated to the States, one of the first things I did was buy a shotgun. Really? What was your first shotgun? <laughs> I think it's an A50 from, A50 from Winchester. Okay. A, a single shot, a really, really heavy barrel, and it was a 20-gauge, but it shot three-inch shells. Oh. And, uh, Which at the time, probably a lot of guns didn't. It might have been hard to find three-inch shells at the time. Yes, they, they, they were quite more expensive, 
but uh, but the, the 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 full choke of the, that twenty gauge had a tremendous range. You could, oh. you could drop a bird fifty sixty yards out with that gun, and uh, I, I used to, to hunt squirrels in the southeast Minnesota, and they're good to eat though. Yeah, <laughs> oak forest squirrels oh, yeah, are good yeah, to eat. Yeah, eat all those acorns and yeah, yeah. yeah they're, the, the Spaniards have made a tremendous business of uh, selling pigs that eat acorns. Yes. <laughs> so, so there must be something there. Well, it's the same with, uh, right? It's, you have a lot of experience of this, of, you know, animals do taste like what, what they, they eat. And Absolutely. so pheasants out here eating corn and milo, and they have a great flavor, you know. And bugs, yeah. It's, it's, uh... And buck and deer. As opposed to the mule deer out west, which I are very sagey and rougher to eat, I think, than the white-tailed deer that we yeah, eat here. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't have, a, how do you call it, a preference for the corn-fed animals, even though I'm in the business of raising and selling corn. Uh, I, I think that the grass-fed meat is better. Yeah. It is more difficult to cook because it's very easy to dry up to the point that it becomes a brick. But if you cook it properly, I think that it's more flavorful. And I noticed a big difference when I eat a commercially produced uh, piece of meat with a lot of marbling, my stomach is heavy afterwards. Mm. When I eat grass-fed beef or wild game, my stomach is seldom heavy afterwards. Mm -hmm. so. so, okay, you move out here and, and did you did you how did this passion for pheasant hunting develop or is it just that's the species out here to upland hunt yes so that's what in, you in, in essence is that because in in uh really my my favorite quarry but i don't get to see it too often is the rough grouse in southeast minnesota mm -hmm. but uh we live now six hours or seven hours away from there and to buy an out-of-state license i'm an old cheapskate yes so, you are so so <laughs> So paying too much for something kind of rubs me the wrong way. But, but anyways, the pheasants here were abundant and uh, they're good to eat. Yeah. So, so it was a, a simple choice and challenging uh, enough to hunt. And then we bought Springer Spaniels by chance. We end up with a fantastic Well, let's dog. hear about that. What, what was your, when, when was your first Springer and, and what dog was that? Uh, was Inti was a female that was sold to us as a, a properly registered uh, Springer Spaniel. They turned out not be able to produce the, the papers. So I, I think we got a refund, but I don't remember exactly, but we kept the dog. But then she died of a heart condition oh. very shortly thereafter. And we had not been really experienced with dog husbandry. We didn't know it, but she would lay down and get tired very quickly. But after that, we went to a kennel in Madison and we picked up a runt that was named Spike. Uh, and we named Spike because he, his hair on top of his head was straight up, uh. you know. And, and he was a runt that had not been sold and was way past, was six months old or something like that, way, way past the time. But we had good chemistry and he got well along with us, except that he would bolt from the yard. Oh. You know, if you were took him out to play in the yard and if you weren't paying attention to him, he was gone. <laughs> so he paid a few fines. 
But he wasn't. Well, you paid a few fines on his behalf. <laughs> yes, but but he turned out to be a fantastic hunter and a great retriever, and uh, but a, a little how do you call adamant, you know. He he thought that he knew more about hunting than me. <laughs> so we had a few rough spots there, yeah. and this is before shot collars, you know. So oh. so you didn't have control of the dog. So and is that when you built the kennel in your backyard when he? Well, uh-huh. other people got wind of how good the dog was, uh-huh. and they started requesting him for breeding. Oh, because he was properly registered. He was a, sure, a full sure. how do you call uh, pedigree dog. A pedigree yeah. dog, you know. He had had a history, and uh, some local breeders of no great fame uh, started asking for him because they knew he was a good hunter, you know, and the work, work had gotten around, people would borrow him to hunt, oh. you know. And, uh, and, and then anyways, so we got the pigs of the litter. And the, the first pig of the litter was Frisky, which was peculiarly a very oversized Springer, you know, a 50 pound dog. Oh, yeah. And boy, he, he was famous, but uh, a, a, a good, good I, I nicknamed him the Irish hunter because he had his own rules. Uh-huh. You know, he would not mind you, you know. And he, but he, unfortunately for us, had a, a, what they call a, a retained a retain, uh, uh, gnat uh, testicle and was deemed unfit for breeding. So we had to... Uh, move on and then uh, and then another leader we picked up a female and, and that was a, a spirit of liberation and uh, she was a, a, a very little springer and but very very intelligent and unfortunately she developed an antipathy to the shotgun oh so she would hunt fantastic until you fire a shot you fire the first shot and she ran for the pickup oh, and that was it yeah Oh, but she would ruin the field and she would flush them out. You know, it, it was just great. And uh, a, f- a friend of ours, uh, through the divorce, obtained a high pedigree dog. Okay. And this high pedigree dog bred Libby. And uh, had a eight dog leader. And I made a web page and I sold those dogs. But uh, I had decided early on to keep one because he was the firstborn, and uh, and he had all due claws, and and he was his name was Chunk, because he was built like a brick. I remember now. This is about when I I came into the picture late in Chunk's life. Yes, when you had Chunk and Red. Yes, and 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 then you know uh, another brother because they they're so incredible. The Springer Spaniels they're all individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, in the eight liter, each one had their own temperament, their own mindset, and, and they're all spotting. But when they were in the pile, they couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> you know, so you get confused in them because they're they're kind of peculiar. So we resorted to give them colors with color. Sure. So the this chunk retained his chunk, you know, but the other ones were named blue, red, and, and different things, and they were all sold. Except that Red developed a, a very expressive intelligence. Mm. He, he would just, uh, you could tell that he was going to be a very smart dog. Yeah. And I decided that I wanted to keep half-breeding rights on him. Oh. 
And since I wasn't a famous breeder or anything like that, I had no rec social recognition for my work. People kind of laugh at me and nobody bought the dog. So I end up stuck with Chunk that I had chosen from the very beginning and Red because nobody wanted to let me have, have rights and I was not going to sell them just for a few dollars. And, and Red was so intelligent that he would come to a field and he knew where the bears would be. Hmm. But his brother Chunk, Chunk had a peculiar characteristic that his nose was twice as broad as Red's. So uh, in, a, in a very unconventional way, those two dogs hunted together, which is uncommon that two sibling dogs will hunt well together. Mm -hmm. Red knew where to go in the field and Chuck would find them. Hmm. And I was nicknamed the Vicuña Vortex because wherever I was with his two dogs, the bears were coming up. Yeah. And the birds are always around. People just don't find them, you know, and, and quite often we come to think that we walk over the birds. And occasionally you do see it because after you cover a field, the birds are getting up. You see them behind you, you or you're, you, you're hunting and a, another guy will say, they're getting up behind you. And they are because they, they st put. stick tight until they hear you pass and then they flee. Sure. And so, so, so that was a, a pretty spectacular thing. And, and uh, people have to remember that the extensions here are, are, are large. They are not little places. They are not little just honey spots. And, and then the cover is quite thick, which uh, kind of makes the pointers a little useless. Because if you don't know where the dog is, uh, it is difficult to take advantage of, of the gift yeah. of him flashing the bird off of your feet on command. You know? Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to... There's a lot of guys who hunt with pointers. Yeah. But... I have found, and I think you and I share this, and a lot of times when we're out in our group of hunters, you and I have the only two flushers and the only two real natural retrievers of birds we'll let, that will yes. hunt yes. cripples and hunt, hunt dead, you know, find dead birds. And this time of year, well, we've only shot one bird yesterday, and I hit it, crippled it, and were it not for Crosby, we would have lost that bird. Yeah, you never found it. No, because I saw it running in the snow, and then it dove under some cattails in the snow. And, and buried himself. Buried himself, yeah, to die. And thankfully, Crosby picked up on the scent and was able to find that bird. But no human could find that bird. No, and you had to dig him out of the hole. I did. I did have to get in there and dig him out. What, okay, now and, now, and then you had a rental dog for a year, Dozer. Oh, no, no, he, he was... <laughs> he was loaned. No, when, uh, I, I've had my few, how do you call it, health mishaps and, and uh, funny things. And then uh, my two dogs, uh, Chunk and Red, uh, hunted so well for so long that I forgot about this business of racing dogs or doing anything. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... It's hard to think about a puppy when you've or a litter when you've already got two working dogs yes especially hard for maybe your wife to think about the yeah the third you dog. didn't want to have the house invaded by dogs and, uh, and poop and all of that stuff yeah so so she 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 has the 80 percent of the house duty you know and she frowns a little bit on that but she fell in love with the dogs too yeah you know so it was kind of a, a, a mixed deal but then uh, the two dogs uh, died very quickly 
to each other. In succession. In, yeah. in succession. Yeah. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, we had also obtained a, a little bitch. I, I can't remember her name. And uh, so I was thinking, oh, well, we'll have more puppies from her. We'll find the stud and have more puppies. But once the two dogs died kind of fast and uh, Chunk died last, but he was deaf and almost blind by the time he died. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we lost him hunting. In fact, we were laughing about this earlier today that uh, he got lost in a cornfield and we spent an hour looking for him. And, and, and Red developed uh, at age 14, a sore in his hip. And uh, by the time, you know, I noticed that he was leaking at it real hard. And it was a Sunday night. And by the time Monday morning came around, he had already chewed the hide. Mm. You know, so we knew he had to be put to sleep. No, yeah, yeah. no healing of that. Uh, Chunk, on the other hand, you know, his hips were okay. But he, he just beat it out. Once he could not hunt, he went down, yeah. down, down. Yeah. And uh, so, so we lost the two dogs within a matter of months, weeks. I remember, yeah. And, uh, and then we got left without dogs. And then uh, a, a good friend of mine that was uh, avid hunter too, uh, well, Blaha, he knew of a dog that one of his, uh, I think, son-in-law had that had become a little bit of a troublesome dog, you know, mm. because the Springers are so driven that it's easy to see where they will uh, cross the boundaries mm -hmm. and get in trouble. And, and, and they were thinking, what do we do with this dog? And they knew that I didn't have a dog. So they loaned me the dog with the idea that I might be stuck with him. Mm -hmm. so, so I took the dog and he turned out to be a fantastic hunter. He was, I remember. Yeah. But he hated cats. Ah. <laughs> oh, I mean, he, he, he had a passion for cats. And we've always had a cat at home, which yeah. is necessary here for mice control in the Dakotas, you know. Yeah. We've never had a mouse in, in, in our house because of Coqueta. Yeah. Uh, but those who got a hold of Coqueta and almost killed her. And so happily for us back then, the former owner of those are decided to take him back. And we, with, with sorrow, we let him go back. But they always remark afterwards, what the heck had I done to Dozer that he had become a much calmer dog? Mm. And, and, and I think that was the fulfillment of Hunt and, and the, 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 the tough love Hunt, you know, because he, by, by then we had short collars. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and well, and, and he, he knew yeah. he, he knew he might had misbehaved when I sapped him. Oh boy! So so he was very apologetic that he'd been sapped. <laughs> and now, how about this dog at your feet? Well, the old old chunk. I mean, uh, Benton. Benton is another peculiar case. I, I went through a, a nasty battle of cancer. And when the doctors finally uh, got the handle on it and the prognosis became more positive, uh, there was a, a potential of further life. So uh, we were going back to Minnesota and I started thinking, well, what am I going to do to resume life? Uh, and there's an ad in the paper, you know, we, were, we had picked up the Minneapolis Tribune in, in some spot on the way over to the Mayo Clinic. And, and here was this breeder that was 
a half a mile off of the road back home. Hmm. So when we went to the routine and the prognosis became more positive, I decided the heck with it, I'll get another dog. Hmm. I, I, I had already begun uh, searching for old motorcycles because I, I, I decided that if I was gonna have a little second bounce at life, I was gonna do some of the things I really like to do. Good. And the heck with whatever adverse consequence there might be. So, so we stopped back in, in Lake Benton, is where Benton was, mm -hmm. and, 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 and he was the last dog left in the leader there too, or second to the last, I think. And it was love at first sight. The, the pup loved us right away. He ran for me and he came into me and he, he was very good. And then his father and mother were also very, very nice. So against all tradition and history, I did not bargain at all. I just bought him. Hmm. And we paid a, a pretty price for him for my taste. <laughs> But he's been a, a great hunter, and he also grew like Frisky, oversized. He's a he's a it's big a, springer. It's a big springer, but but the kind of hunting we do is necessary. Absolutely, yeah. the the big cat tails, you know, the, a small dog would not last. Yeah, and and he has enough weight that he can jump onto the the, the smaller cat tails, and it will sink in again. But he has enough power to to get it done. It's a big, powerful dog. Great retriever, and and he is almost a half breed in between Chunk and Red, because it is smart like Red was, and he also has a big nose. Yeah. So I got the two dogs in one now. That's good. And, but he's 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 as ordinary as those. Sir. He is. He is. <laughs> driven. He's full of personality. That dog, he's just driven. like his owner. He's driven, and he's he's caught quite a few pheasants. Got a couple of live ones that he is. Just caught. Yep, there he goes. But he's got too much hair, so I have to trim him twice a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, um, because the, the country we hunt around here is quite berry. And, uh, berry. Uh, uh, that means burrs, yeah. Burrs. Yeah. And, then, and then they start cutting into the tissue. It's a, it's a nuisance. Um, what do you love? Well, let me, let me say that I'm going to quote you and ask you to expound on this. You once told me that one of the things you loved most about hunting is the, the, the best of your skill and come into play and the stars need to align. In other words, hunting is one of these endeavors in life that both demands skill and expertise but also luck because you could be the greatest hunter in the world. And if there's no pheasants in that field, you're not going to shoot any pheasants. Yes. Yes. It, it is kind of a, we get into the magical realm, like in the Gabriel Garcia market stories, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that there's something beyond logic or science that creates fulfillment. And, and that is a task well done when the winds blow in your direction and over which you want to have control because the, the serendipity of it, uh, the gift of the bird, you know, like the Native Americans talk about giving themselves to you. Yeah. Because uh, 
it, it is it is a peculiar kind of magical event when you when you do it. Now, and that is a, a great contrast with the the killing or the release birds or you know the approaching the video game fantasy that you can just pull the trigger many many times. I don't think that that has the same level of fulfillment that hunting a wild bird in, in a more of a of a fair play as Leopold would say. Yeah. You know, the 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 meaning of the skills, the opportunity and the effort to do it and then the I say the respect, mm. you know, for the the situation that produces this satisfaction. You know, uh, some people might say that, oh, it is cruel to the animal, but uh, I also take the peculiar tact that if I had the discretion of choice, I would rather live free until the moment of harvest than be cooped up in a cubicle, being fed and kept yeah. until you're going to be harvested anyway. Yeah. So, so it is kind of a, a peculiar thing, and I, I try to live by that credo. You know, what what tips and tricks have you learned in all these years of pheasant hunting about this kind of hunting that we do in uh, in the in the terrain that we do it using the dogs that that we use? Well, I <clears throat> I kind of follow the path of, uh, of of red that you come into a field and you gotta kind of figure out where would the pheasant want to be? Mm. What does he like? What does he uses? Where you're likely to find them? And then, uh, you know, use the psychology and, and strategy to accomplish it. And uh, in, in my estimation, uh, the, the herd hunting that a lot of people do does not need that many people. You need three people, it's, it's the perfect environment because you got to triangulate them, you know, come in from all sides. Because mm -hmm. when you're just too pinching, there's two flanks that are too exposed an easy path. But when you have three flanking, then it's, it's a little more difficult for the birds to escape. But it's very difficult to find people that understand this well and the, the trust that you will not be in in the range of their gun mm -hmm. <clears throat> when you're approaching the, the closure, which is when you close what I call the pen, when you get within a shotgun range of each other, when the birds that are in are gonna be shot. Yeah, yeah, this is one thing that I've picked up from you over the years is, first of all, this lazy line or almost a closed line uh, as you go through a field with those three or four hunters. So the, the hunters who are on the edges are up a little forward. Exposes them to the, the, the shotgun range, right? the danger range. Yeah. So yeah. You, you can only do that with people that you have enough confidence that they are not going to make a mistake. Yeah. The proficiency, you know, a gun that misfires. Right. It's not an unacceptable gamble. And then you've got another hunter or two in the middle and they're lagging a little bit back. It's like a clothesline. And then at the end, there are blockers, and you tend to do a fast and then slow. So you move quickly through the field until you're 80 yards. So you, you figure each each hunter has a 
effective shotgun range of about 40 yards, hopefully. Yes. And then so when you're 80 yards away from the blockers, then you hit the brakes and you just let... So your idea is if you're going quickly through the field, you're pushing the birds out in front of you. And then when they sense the blockers, they stop. Their, their, their uh, survival instinct tells them that the fleeing is the proper way mm -hmm. when you first start. So when you first start, you make noise and you can cover <clears throat> a lot more than your 80, 80 yards yeah. uh, in between hunters. Uh, but as you get closer, then the birds will realize, oh, shoot, I cannot escape by running. Yeah. So then he will elect to get put. And that's when people make the mistake, when they get close to the other hunters, they say the hunt is done. And then they go all to the middle and then the birds start getting behind them, you know, <clears throat> or even run, you don't even see them. Yeah. Uh, but and that's, that's, that's the trick, you know, to make the bird nervous in the end. Uh, because the, then they make bad choices. They make bad choices, and and that's a moral of life too. You know, don't don't paint yourself into the corner so you make bad choices. Mm -hmm. So so really, there is a lot of moral background, you know, and how you call life schooling or, or life lessons in the in however the hunt. you want to baptize it or name it, I guess. Uh, so so it is it is really an, an interesting phenomenon, and as I get older. It's become harder because I was so capable of moving in the field and, and so a series of things that have happened. I don't have that skill anymore. Look, yeah, I know you say that, but I can't tell you how many times, even yesterday. Yesterday was physically that 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 slew we pushed. That we pushed. I mean, did we push a half a mile north? in that slew more or less yes and it was brutal i mean it's one of the hardest most physically challenging hunts i've ever had and yeah, you're and you're because you refuse to wear snowshoes that's true well, i didn't the, wear the, snowshoes the snowshoes you know have their 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 drawbacks like everything else yeah their, their drawbacks too once once you break through the crust that you're floating over the top of the cattails then you're five feet deep with the snowshoes at the bottom of your feet that's hard. And they're tangling the cattails, and then you don't want to get the shotgun wet in the snow because once the, the snow gets into the shotgun, then it freezes to the shotgun, and then you're done hunting. Yeah. And then you're half a mile or so a wait, is this mile in the middle of the snow and no <laughs> purpose anymore, you know. <laughs> is, this, is this supposed to convince me to wear snowshoes today, this little bitch? <laughs> well, you know, it, it is a schooling too. Yeah, you, because the, not everybody was born with snowshoes, and it takes some dexterity to run with them. It's true, or or walk with them, and then to fight the cattails with shoes twice as big as the normal size is not easy either. Because all the little deer paths that are inside the cattail sloughs no longer work so well. Yeah, and and then when you lose your balance, uh, there is no quick moving of the feet. You know, so so you cannot gain it. So when you you know you're going down, you're going down. Yeah. So all you can do is hold the shotgun up so it don't plow into the snow, and then, <laughs> then where's Benton became the rescuer because I had to call him in, so I would have something to support my hand so I could ride myself to yeah. get up. Yeah. <laughs> because he's it, your crutch. 
Yeah, because the, the snow bank is so deep that you don't reach bottom. Yeah. So you cannot ride yourself. And like I say, if you lay the shotgun in the, in the snow to, to get some leverage, you're done hunting. Yes. Okay. So all this to say, you're 72 years old and a two-time survivor of cancer, plus a horrific car accident, plus you dropped a tree on your foot and almost destroyed your foot. It's incredible you're still out. I mean, the, the capability you have is, is extraordinary. And we comment on that behind your back all the time. So now I'm just saying it to you, you know, on the record, that it's, it, it's very, very impressive. I mean, my, my father, when he was 72, could not have done this, what, what, we're, what you do on a daily basis out here. So it's impressive. No, and, 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 and it goes back, you know, to, to this uh, invisible hand of God, you know, that uh, it's, it's a mystery. How come you get so many gifts mm. with no merit? Because I haven't done anything specific to have these gifts, you know, this mobility that I've had. And, and you know, in, in fact, I, I could consider myself a little reckless in that I love motorcycles and, and I've engaged in multiple very risky and dangerous activities. And I've not always escaped unskated, but somehow I've been allowed to continue. Hmm. Because when I crashed my foot, it was nip and tuck that I was gonna lose the foot. Yeah. And, and, and it was so silly because I saw the accident before it happened. But I said, oh no, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> you know, there, there was just one tree outlying to the tree that I was toppling. And I, there's a certain degree of discontrol when you're toppling a big tree. And of, of all the space around the 360 degrees that was available, or 180 to say it in a better way, the big cottonwood chose to fall right on the single ash tree that was 30 yards away. And that created the spring that the cottonwood sprang back up and fell on me beyond the stump, mm. you know, so. Mm. Uh, so, but I saw the tree and, and I still went ahead and, and cut the other tree with that other tree standing away. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. So I, I kind of self-inflicted that wound, you know. And, and the motorcycle, yeah, I've had a couple of motorcycle crashes over the years that were silly. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> well, and then the cancer, just cancer is cancer. You know, it just, yes. it happens. Yes, and, 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 and that, that kind of brought another peculiar twist into this life process is that all of a sudden you realize that the life is not yours. Mm. That it's kind of a, a loan, and uh, a loan with a big string to retrieve it, that at any time, at any time, it can be gone. And there's not too many people that at age 40 or age 50 or age 60 are really stopping to think that they might not be there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And you know, when that sort of happens to you, and the big billboard right in front of you that you can no longer avoid, it definitely changes your perspective. Yeah. And, and it, it kind of uh, 
settles you into some things that you always had, but you didn't give any importance to it. And that reinforces the need for some of the things that generate the serotonin. Serotonin. <laughs> serotonin. The, the, the human body requires a certain degree of happiness. Yeah. And, and you better chase that. Mm. And that's another of my favorites is that the American founding fathers uh, had it right. And very people pay, pay little attention to it. The fundamental right of America is the pursuit of happiness. And that's the powerful one, that when the tyrants try to take away that, they might confront themselves with a revolt. You know, and, and people don't talk about it, but, but that is what tyrants do. Tyrants wanna make cheap out of people for their interest. Mm -hmm. And they have no interest on in the interest of the people. And that's, uh, yeah. you know, what, when you get confronted with it, it, you become more adamant about the things you like and you want to do. And really, everybody should stop, think, and yeah. decide what is that they really want to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, thank you. Thanks for recording this podcast, but also thank you for taking me in 10 years ago. And... I mean, you've taught me an extraordinary amount about hunting and about dog handling and about shooting, but about life, but about life. And I appreciate our friendship. You once said, we are the unlikeliest of friends. I don't know if you remember saying that about you and me. We're the, you and I are, because what would have brought us together other than the hunt? Yeah. And, 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 and in a funny way, you know, uh, I, I learned to respect all professions, mm. to define them in some way, human works, because we all kind of try to accomplish glory and become important and successful and, and all of that. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter which office you have. Mm -hmm. It's just that you do it well. Mm -hmm. It's just that you have concern of not Hurting others. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, I guess uh, have a motor on you and, you know, go for what you want. Yeah. Well, let's hope our motors get us <laughs> into some birds today. Yeah. <laughs> There's some productivity to this endeavor, you know, because so far it's been kind of... <laughs> oh, it's been a little... Of course, it's the jinx of suddenly you have TV cameras following you, then the birds disappear. <laughs> Because yeah. you and I have shot so many birds this season. I mean, multiple days of limits this year. You no, and we I. did. I've lost track of it. I know, I know that many, I, many, I, I, you, have, you and I have plenty of birds. I, lots I of days I'm, of limits, of, of five-man limits and even eight-man limits. And now two days we've hunted and we've shot one pheasant. So here's and, to today. And that was the only shotable pheasant. Yeah, that's right. The others, we took a couple real long shots. Hail Marys, you know. Yeah. You're just doing it for the sport of it, so the, well, gun, the gun doesn't get bored. <laughs> Today we'll find them. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>